Well, um, we participated in Operation Christmas Child. Hey, Jerry, would you give me one of those boxes? Thanks. We're pretty informal here. <laughs> Thanks. These little things are being shipped out this week. If you've participated in this, um, this is the last day to get them in. There's been 515 of these things brought in so far. Very cool. And last weekend, there was a young lady here that was staying with a family from the church from Botswana, Africa, and she had been the recipient in the past of one of these boxes in her village and has seen them passed out to other kids in her village. So yeah, they really make it there, okay? Um, I'm going to let this one represent the uh, boxes that are going out. I want to ask you to pray with me over our 515 little uh, Operation Christmas Child boxes that uh, God would use them to spread the, tr the word of truth. Would you pray with me about that? Father, thank you so much for the generous hearts and for the individuals who have brought these gifts in. We thank you so much for what it represents. And so we ask specifically, God, that you would take these 515 boxes from this church and send them out to the villages unknown to us and use them for the purpose of spreading the truth of Jesus Christ. We ask this blessing on these boxes in your name. Amen. Um, as in past weeks, uh, last week being the first week, I'm putting the uh, notes up here. You have these when you uh, came in this morning with your bulletins with little blanks, and this one happens to have the blanks filled in. So if you happen to miss any during the message today, you'll find them up here in the front after the service, and that way you can just fill them in if you need to, especially if you feel like you're taking a test. Some of you, I know, you like to get every single answer right, so you've got to fill them in. And that's a good thing, especially when it comes to the word of truth. Um, tonight, one announcement, high schoolers, we are going bowling tonight, and so if you want a ride to the bowling alley, uh, be here at the church at 6 o'clock, and we'll make sure you have a ride, and you'll be back here by 8.30, and uh, if you don't need a ride, um, meet us at the bowling alley at 6.15, the name of it is printed in your bulletin there, so you can get that detail. Well, last week, we got to see this magnificent description of what Jesus looks like in resurrection state. You know, the last time Jesus was seen by the world, he was on the cross, right? I mean, people, the world, saw him as the defeated, they thought in their eyes, crucified Savior. And they didn't call him the Savior, though. They just called him this Jew, and they put this title above his cross, the King of the Jews, and the Romans despised him. But there was this group of 500 people or so, the Bible tells us, that saw him from Easter morning forward that saw the resurrected Jesus. And John, we learned about, was part of that group. They saw Jesus resurrected, but they never saw him like John saw him, as we read about last week, the glorified Son of God. Amazing imagery in Revelation chapter 1. So we're so fortunate to have that written down. God instructed John to write that down so that we could see it. W.A. Criswell is a pastor who uh, is passed on now, but he pastored the first megachurch in the world. And the church that he pastored was the First Baptist Church of Dallas. And back in 1953, when he took it over, it was already at 8,000 people. And he led it for the next 30 years to 18,000 people. And W.A. Criswell, his first Sunday, he started teaching Genesis 1-1. 
And 30 years later, he finished the book of Revelation. He taught all the way through the Bible, every single verse by verse. And the church grew. Amazing. Imagine that. You teach the Word of God and the church grows. It's a, it's a, it's a formula there. And so um, W.A. Criswell heard all his life about Christians who viewed Jesus as the one on the cross, but they failed to see the resurrected Jesus. And so he wrote this long dissertation. I've captured just a paragraph from it. You'll see it on the screen. That all, then all men shall look upon him as he really is. They shall see him holding in his hands the title deed to the universe, the authority of all creation. That's the Jesus that we pray to and we worship. That's the one whom we sing to when we sing Alleluia and the band plays along. If you can capture that imagery in your mind, that's the Jesus who speaks to us this morning through the book of Revelation. And so as we enter into this next stage of the study of the book of Revelation, it is so important that we understand the authority base from which the one who speaks to us today, the authority from which he speaks. And that imagery that we saw last week leads us perfectly into it. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now that God will help us to see what he's really trying to say to our church, to New Hope, to help us to understand the role that he's called us to play. And I do mean each of you individually because it comes out powerfully in this few verses in chapter 2 this morning. So would you pray with me first of all? Father, we are aware that there is a battle taking place that is invisible to us at a level that is unseen among spiritual forces. And we sometimes feel the fallout from that in our own personal lives. And we're very quick to dismiss things like that to chance or circumstance. But in fact, your word promises that there is a battle between good and evil. And indeed, you have placed this church in this place at this time to represent your kingdom, that we would be a force for your kingdom. So Father, I ask for the men and women in this room, for the students, for the boys and girls, that you help us to comprehend what you are saying specifically to us as your church this morning and the role that you've called us to. Help us to not miss it, Father. So we ask in biblical language, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And I would add this, Father, a heart to understand. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. In 1989, no one saw it coming. No one could have anticipated a worldwide event that had such profound impact that it shaped the political landscape of Europe. Everyone who was interviewed for television and for newspaper and for magazine and for radio interviews all said the same thing. I never dreamed in my lifetime that I would see this happen. I could not have imagined it. No one understood when President Reagan stood up and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down those walls that the reverberations throughout Europe would be felt and it would have such 
a political upheaval that today people are still feeling the effects of it. No one also knew that President Ronald Reagan had not consulted with his counsel prior to making that announcement. As a matter of fact, those who knew what he was about to do said to him, please, Mr. President, we implore you, do not use that phrase. The repercussions will be so profound, you are not prepared to deal with the fallout of it. He was so convicted, he later wrote from God, that he was supposed to call that nation to free the people of East Berlin, that he couldn't hold himself back. And they knew when he took the platform and got up there that he was going to say those words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down those walls. In 1989, no one saw it coming, which tells us this, because no one planned it, no political schemers were working on it, no governments had orchestrated it, it must be the result of something that was going on in the sphere of God. The councils of God had acted once again to intercede on man's behalf and allowed something to happen that no one anticipated. That's the kind of thing that we'll be studying about in the book of Revelation as it unfolds, the battles that take place on earth and the battles that take place in heaven, the unseen sphere. But before we get to that in Revelation chapter 4, Jesus does something that is so profound that it should cause all of us to sit back and say, Wow, he's asked me to do that? I'm not sure I'm ready. But the Spirit says you're ready. So in Revelation chapter 2 and in Revelation chapter 3, he speaks before he talks about the world events, specifically to his church and the things that he expects of us to do in the end times, the way that he expects us to bear his light. Because the church is in the front line trenches. We're right in the middle of it. And if we're not, we're going to find in Scripture what he does as a result of that. So here we are in the front line church trenches. Jesus set his church right in the midst of the world. And unfortunately, some people, when they teach the book of Revelation, they skip these letters that we're about to look into because they want to get to the juicier stuff, you know, missile launches and things like that. But in Revelation chapter 2, if you'll turn there with me, you'll find Jesus has some profound things to say to us. So open up your Bible, first of all, to Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to pick up those last couple verses where we left off last week. What's going to happen here is a performance review. You ever had a performance review? You ever sat with a boss or an employer, and he said, time for your annual review? How would it be if you sat down with the omniscient king of kings and asked him to do a performance review of his church. How would Jesus grade the modern day church as to effectiveness, as to unity, as to doctrine? How would he grade us? I think it's very significant that we got to see last week Jesus in all his splendor and glory, flaming eyes, powerful sword, glowing feet, brilliantly lit face as the one who speaks judgment or corrective action upon his church. 
So look with me at verse 19 of chapter 1. He says to John, Therefore, since you know all these things about me, write. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Since I hold the keys to death and to hell, you have nothing to fear, John. You have nothing to worry about. So, write. And John begins writing. What does he write? This is what Jesus says to him. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. If you're a student of Scripture, you know that that is the outline for the book of Revelation. Specifically, look, the things which you have seen, the vision John just saw in Revelation chapter 1, the vision of Jesus, the things which are, the letters to the seven churches, the state of the church, and the third one, the things which will take place after these things, future events. Vision of Jesus, condition of the church, future events, chapters 4 through 22. So that's the outline. That's how Jesus set up the book of Revelation. And then he gives his own commentary in verse 20. He tells us what these things mean. He says in verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Do you notice what's missing? There's no denomination mentioned. He doesn't say, John, write to the Methodist church in Ephesus, and write to the Lutheran church in Thyatira, and oh yeah, the Baptists, they're over in Laodicea. No. Right to my church, the people who belong to me. He says specifically, I want you to give them some instructions. Now, the word mystery, the mystery of the seven stars, in Greek, the word mystery is mysterion, and it means the secret things, things which man could not understand, which God reveals, the secret meaning. And the secret meaning is this the lampstands are the churches, John. The lampstands, the light bearers, they're the churches. They're the ones shining forth the light. So the light that we bear forth is the truth of Jesus. That's the light that we bear. As a matter of fact, Jesus said it this way himself, Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. I notice something else that's missing. He does not give this to a major university. It's knowledge. It's information. He does not give this to a Fortune 500 company. He does not give this to a government. He gives this revelation to us, to the church. And he expects us to do something with it. So it is the business of the church to tell the truth. We're light bearers. So we have the responsibility, shine the light. Tell the truth, who Jesus is. That is the responsibility of the church, and we must never forget that. We are not a social action organization. We are not a political force. We are the truth tellers, the truth of the word of the living God. That's the business of the church. So we find this directed specifically to this group of people historically living in this city called Ephesus. You got this little group of light bearers. We don't really know how big the church is. By this point, this church has been pretty well established, and man, do they have a legacy. I've gone down to Chicago 
to visit Moody Church. Dwight L. Moody was a great preacher back in the 1800s, early 1900s. Moody Bible Church, still a powerful Bible church. I went down there and went on a tour, and the person giving the tour, when they take you towards the auditorium, which is massive, um, walk you through a hallway, and they've got photographs on the hallway wall of all the pastors that have served there, starting with Dwight L. Moody. Can you imagine going to the church in Ephesus and seeing the pictures on the wall there? The first pastor, Paul, okay? The next pastor, Timothy, Apollos, and then John, the writer of the book of Revelation. He was pastoring the church in Ephesus. That's a legacy. Do you think that they were biblically sound, doctrinally accurate? Absolutely. Those would be some photographs to have on your wall. That's the history of this church. And so in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, meaning the pastor or the elders, the leaders of the church, to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. First thing I note is that he wants us to pay attention. He's the one moving in our midst. We can't see him. It's invisible. But the one who moves among the lampstands, he says, I see what's going on. I understand who you are and what you're doing. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's look at historically what's going on in the city of Ephesus. What do we know about these people? Look at this picture on the screen, first of all, and you'll see something. This is a library in the city of Ephesus. You can go see it today. It's the facade, the front. It's empty behind there because it's deteriorated over time. 2,000 years ago, they built this structure. People went to the library to study. It was an educated town, a well-educated town. Next thing, look at the next slide. They liked the arts. They went to the theater to see drama. Eventually, this theater was turned into a place where the gladiators fought. So we've got a city of people who take on educational interest and they take on cultural interest. And they also had one of the ancient seven wonders of the world, the temple to the goddess Diana. What is also known about this city is that it's the second largest city in the world at this time. Somewhere between 250 and 300,000 people lived in this city. Tradition tells us that this is where Jesus' mother Mary went to live after Jesus was resurrected. After John took her under his care, he moved to the city of Ephesus and took Mary with her, with him. What we also know is that this was an incredibly corrupt city. Morally, they were way out on the edge. I'm talking beyond Las Vegas. They had big party nights there. So we've got an educated city, a very populated city, a city that loves drama and arts, and they're also a manufacturing city. They had industry there. So 250, 270,000 people, manufacturing, university, arts, and government. Starting to sound familiar? Sounding like a region that you might find yourself living in? And this is the group of people to whom Jesus says to write. Paul was such a powerful prognosticator of the gospel in this region to these people. He had such a profound impact 
that something as interesting is written in the book of Acts about him. Look on the screen at Acts 19. It says that Paul was so powerful that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That means the entire population heard of the gospel. So this church has got powerful pastors, and they're in the seat of a thriving economy, and Jesus wants to talk directly to them. So here's what he says in verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. The first word that's used there, the word I know, aedo, literally means this, properly to see, to know, to be aware, to have knowledge. So the one with flaming eyes that we just learned about in chapter one, he sees everything. I know what's going on. And what does he know? I know your toil. Look at the word for toil, kapos, as reducing the strength by implication, pain, labor, and trouble, weariness, physically, mentally, and emotionally. And it describes an all-out effort actually to the degree where you sweat, where you're pouring yourself out in everything that you do. So this group of people, these Ephesians, this, king, this kingdom church, they're diligent workers. They're hard workers for the kingdom. And in the midst of this perverse society that they live in, they persevere. You learned that word last week, hupomone. It's about the mule. I remember the description I gave you, the mule that's loaded down with cargo, and he's bearing up under the load even when his legs shake. He's called hupomone. He's bearing up under the load. So Jesus is complimenting them, and he gives them one more that reminds me of new hope. Look at this next one. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles. Their doctrine was solid. They were sound biblically in their teaching. And Paul warned them when he was their pastor. I'm telling you, there are men who are going to rise up among you and teach untruth. As a matter of fact, in his last message to them, Acts chapter 20, you'll see it on the screen, he warned them this way. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Not only could they define doctrine, they were defending it. These guys knew what the Bible said, and they backed it up. So Jesus is commending them. As a matter of fact, if this type of diligence was more practiced today, we'd have less devastated churches around us in which heresy and false truth is being taught. And if you think it's not there, there are thousands of churches in the United States that are bearing false truth. And you'll see what happens to them in just a minute. So Jesus starts out with a commendation. This is what he says. You're a serving church. You're busy doing the work of the Lord. You're a sacrificing church. You're out there laboring to the point of exhaustion. And you're patient. You're persevering. And the next thing he says, you're diligent people, man. You're watching carefully after doctrine. Verse 3 says this, And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. At this point, 
if you are under a performance review, you're feeling pretty phenomenal, aren't you? Thinking, wow, this is going really well. There must be a raise coming. I think I might be up for an A+. This is awesome. The King of Kings has just said through John, you are an excellent church. However, if you've ever been in a performance review, you know that that word, however, is coming at some point. Ever waited for the other shoe to fall when you're in a performance review? And there it comes. The King of Kings, the one with flaming eyes, says, verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. I miss you. You've left what you were called to do. You've left your first love. What did Jesus say when he was challenged here on planet Earth by the Pharisees and the scribes about the first and greatest commandment? Remember, they know the law. And they said, what is the greatest law that was ever written? What was Jesus' response? Look up on the screen and you'll see it. Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the great and foremost commandment. Why did Jesus say your heart, your soul, your entire being, and your mind? And he didn't just say those elements. He said all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. Because of this, it is so easy to come up here and participate and play instruments or go out there and park chariots or go downstairs and butter bread for people and leave your heart outside the door. You can go through the functions, but you leave your love behind. You're just carrying out the actions. And that is such a great danger in a church like this in which we're enjoying the growth. We're enjoying what God is doing here. But the affection of the fire can die down. What we do for Christ is very important. But why we do it is so much more important. What is first love? Let's talk about that. What is your first love? Have you gone to a restaurant? I know you've gone to a restaurant. Have you gone to a restaurant and seen a car pull into the parking lot that still has written on the back window of the door of the, of the glass, just married? As a matter of fact, they're so freshly married, they still have tin cans on their bumper. You watch that car pull in, and you see the husband get out the door of his car, and he runs around to the other side and opens the door for his wife, and they play kissy face all the way into the restaurant. As a matter of fact, it's getting so uncomfortable that people begin to notice there must be, oh yeah, sure enough, it's a just married car out in the parking lot. Look at that couple. It's on display for everyone. They're not holding anything back. That's honeymoon love. That's what this word is here, first love. The church has it down. They do worship great. They serve. They know doctrine. But do you remember what I warned you when we started Revelation? That it not becomes so academic. We're so interested in the future things that we neglect the worship and the adoration of the King of Kings. And that's what you find happening here in this church. They're trading knowledge for worship. 
See, when you first come to Christ, maybe some of you remember this. If you've been a believer recently, it'll be very fresh in your mind. When you first become a Christian, there's so many things you don't know, but you don't care. You're just full of enthusiasm. And I've had some new believers come to me with some absolutely crazy questions. You wouldn't believe some of them. But they've got so much enthusiasm and very little knowledge. Eventually, over a long period of time, we trade enthusiasm for knowledge and become very heady. Do you know that in this greater Lansing area, churches are watching us because a church has not grown this fast before? It's very uncommon for a church to go from 20 to hundreds within two years. And so we've earned a label already. Didn't know that, but I just found that out in the last month. We're called a heady church because we study the deep things of God. We look at doctrine and theology very seriously, which is a compliment from Jesus. He says that's a great thing. But the danger is this, that we trade that knowledge for the adoration and the wonder. And that's the warning that Jesus gives them because he wants our hearts as much as he wants our hands and our head. It's not an either or. He wants both. So how do we identify this? John MacArthur, I found, actually had a very interesting way of identifying these areas in which you lose your first love. And so rather than me just telling you what they are, I'm going to read you his description. He just has three. Three symptoms of you losing your first love. Here's the first one. Visible at first only to the individual is the loss of joy and glow of the Christian life. It soon becomes routine. You begin to feel like you have heard it all already. The church service loses its impact. What pastors and teachers have to say seems mechanical and routine. You're beginning to lose your first love. Number two, you lose your ability to love others. One of the great revelations of the scriptures is that the reason we love others is because we have first been loved ourselves. When we lose that consciousness of the wonder of Jesus' love, we also lose our awareness of others and find our love for them fading. It is difficult to love and we become critical and complaining. And listen closely. We begin to choose our friends more closely and only associate with those we like. We lose the compassion that originally caused us to reach out to everyone. These go in stages, and here's the third one. We lose a healthy perspective of ourselves. We become self-important in our thinking. Instead of what the Lord wants and what will please him, we begin to think of what we want. Gradually, we become touchy, unable to bear criticism. This begins to make divisions in a congregation. Individuals in the church are no longer concerned about those around them without Christ, but are focused on themselves, their own comfort, and self-centeredness sets in. Those are really hard definitions. But I find that to be accurate in churches that I've seen that have just kind of dissipated and gone away. So he says this in verse 5. There's a solution to this problem. Verse 5, therefore, remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. See, that's the great thing. It can be recaptured. Jesus wouldn't have said, you cannot get back there if you couldn't get back there. 
So he says, remember what you did. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Come on back. Go back to where you were at. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Look back. What was it like when you were at the apex of your relationship with Christ? You couldn't wait to read the word of God. When you couldn't wait to engage with other Christians. What was that like? Remember. Go back there. Memory is a powerful thing. And then this word that we found corrupted by our society, repent. It literally means to change your mind. It means to turn from the way you're thinking and go the different direction. Repent just means a new beginning. Pray that God will lead you back to the center again. Do the things that you did at first. Do the deeds. What are those things? Read God's word. It's that simple. Read God's word. Find the love story again and read it with eager eyes. Pray about everything. Respond to the needs around you with compassion. Those are the deeds that you did at first. And above all, praise God from your heart. So when you're singing down here, it's not just mechanical. You're not just standing here looking at the screen and just going through it because the rest of the crowd is. You're praising God because you remember your first love. Wow! The redemption, the salvation, this king, this one that we just unveiled last week, he's the one who rescued us. And he says, if you don't do this, there is a warning. Or else. Mm. Verse 5. Or else. I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Is that a real possibility? Have you known of a church that's lost its ability to shine the light anymore? The church in Ephesus had Paul and Timothy and John. It doesn't exist today. At some point, they did not heed the warning and the light was extinguished. Can you find a church that's more than 100 years old that is still as powerful as they were at the apex of their work? That is a danger that Jesus says, you're in danger of this. Churches apparently have some kind of a life cycle. And so there's a removal of the life stand. And Jesus says, I'm coming to you. I, the king, the judge, am coming to you and I'm going to turn off your light switch. Can you imagine doing religion with absolutely no spiritual impact on the community? You're no longer a light bearer? That's an empty church. That's a church people will leave if we no longer bear the truth. And sadly, there's thousands of churches in the United States that are like that today. They have wandered so far from the truth and their first love that their light was extinguished and the lamp went out. Yet, this is how he wraps it up in verse 6, yet this you do have, this you retain, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, that is a strange thing to hear out of the king of love, isn't it? Jesus hates certain things. And the modern-day image that's painted of Jesus is he's tolerant of everything. No, there's things that he despises. Who are the Nicolaitans? And why does he hate the things that they do? 
I'm going to show you two quotes from two historians that summed up what the Nicolaitans did. The first one is from Irenaeus. You remember him. I described him. He was one of the understudies of John. The Nicolaitans lived lives of unrestrained indulgence. The next one comes from Clement of Alexandria. Nicolaitans abandoned themselves to pleasures like goats leading a life of self-indulgence. Nicolaitans are a group of people who infiltrated the church, and they established what we know today as a hierarchy, where there was structure and people in power. Their name literally means people conquerors. And it's believed that what you see in the church today started with these people. But here's how degraded they were. They were convinced that your spiritual life and your moral life were two absolutely ends of the spectrum. In other words, you can do whatever you want on Saturday night as long as you're in church on Sunday morning. No connection. You can behave however you want because when you come into church, we'll grant you forgiveness. So go ahead. That's why Paul wrote, should we continue in that kind of behavior so that grace would abound? God forbid. We would never take on that kind of action. So these Nicolaitans, they had corrupted the church and they taught that immorality doesn't affect your spiritual life. And they were absolutely wrong. And Jesus said, I hate their behavior. I hate their actions. So in verse 7, he ends it by giving us a promise. Look at this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now that's a pretty big promise, isn't it? That's so big that I'd really want to know, what does that mean? To eat of the tree of life? What specifically is he talking about? First, he says, pay attention. Now, at this point, we've been talking plural, church, corporate. Do you notice the change in the structure here of the verse? It's singular. He, singular, you, individuals, who have an ear, singular, individuals, pay attention Let him, singular, hear what the Spirit says to the church. I'm speaking now. Jesus says, I'm speaking to you individually, specifically, about your eternal destiny. To him who overcomes, what is an overcomer? What in the world is this overcomer who gets to eat of this tree of life? And what is this tree of life thing? Well, first of all, let's look at the definition for the word overcomer. Look at it up on the screen. Nikao, in Greek, to subdue, conquer, prevail, or get the victory. Do you see the little word in parentheses? Nike. That's where they got the name. Okay? It doesn't mean if you wear the right pair of tennis shoes, you're in. Okay? It means if you claim the victory through Jesus Christ, if you're faithful to the calling, if you overcome the world, all these sensual pleasures, church in Ephesus, everything that can draw you away, deny that, overcome the world, and follow after me faithfully, you're going to get to enjoy the tree of life in the paradise of God. Where did we last hear about the tree of life? Oh, I think that was way back in the Garden of Eden. Look with me on the screen at Genesis 3. This is before the fall of man. 
Genesis, um, I'm sorry. Did I jump ahead, guys? Yep. Okay, Genesis 3, 22. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Adam and Eve lost access to the tree of life. God removed it from the Garden of Eden. But it reappears again in the book of Revelation in chapter 22. And we're told that in heaven, this tree of life still exists. Removed from the garden, placed in heaven, and to those who are nikao, who overcome, you will enjoy fellowship with Christ at the tree of life. That's what it says. And it says you can't earn it, but you must be faithful to the calling. So this isn't some reward for an exceptional few, those who are really high performers. This is an expectation, a normal expectation for every believer. If you're a nekao, if you overcome, you will enjoy the tree of life. So let me ask you a question. Do you have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the church? And you are the church? That's what he's asking us. For those who have an ear to hear, you understand what I'm calling you to. You are the light bearers. You overcome the world. You are nakao. You understand your morality and your spirituality are not separate. They're one and the same. And the God of the universe, the Almighty, wrote it all down for you. Why? Because our responsibility is to share the truth to the world. We're to be the first love of Jesus Christ. And if we stop doing that, he turns off the light because you lose your effectiveness. You're no longer the light of the world. Pretty dangerous, pretty sobering, isn't it? Pretty humbling stuff. But the darker the day, the greater the light must shine. And that's the world that we live in. Dark world. We got to be a brilliant light. How bright was the light of Jesus? His face was so bright that John collapsed in his presence. I'd love to be known for a church that's so bright that all of the community doesn't look and say, that's a heady church. They really study deep stuff. But rather, wow, is their light bright there? I gotta check that out. What's going on? Let's be brilliant light bearers for the kingdom. You pray with me? Father, it's clear to me as I look at Scripture that the mystery and the mission that you gave us was to exert incredible influence upon the world. God, you didn't tell us to do it through politics or through business. You didn't tell us to do it through universities. You told us to do it as a church and to proclaim the truth. So we as your people come before you this morning with a recognition that we may not always be the brightest light, yet we desire to be, Father. And we don't ever want to have our lampstand turned out. And I ask for the men and women, individuals in this room, Father, for the students, for the children, 
that you would give us a clear understanding through the power of your Holy Spirit what it means to be totally sold out to you, our first love. Father, I'm sure that there are individuals in this room who have just lost that feeling and they're not sure how to get it back. I've been there, Father. And I know what you had to do to bring me back. So I ask for those individuals that you would restore to them that sense of belonging to you, the awareness that no matter what, you will call them back to yourselves. Father, you told us to remember, to repent, and to do the deeds we did at first. Sometimes that seems incredibly hard, Father. Just to start, we would ask that you help us to remember that first love, what it was like to be in perfect relationship with you. God, I ask this as this individuals leave this room this morning, that they'll remember this message in a way that ignites a flame, even if it's small. And I ask, Father, that you would fan it into just a brilliant glow again. God, I ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.